Join the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Cybersecurity on June 6, 2024, in New York City, to be at the forefront of shaping the future of cybersecurity and creating a more secure digital landscape. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks very much for joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star review. This week, we're taking a look at the condition of America's national security and global power. My guest is Tom Cotton, U.S. Senator from Arkansas. Senator Cotton has a new book out, Only the Strong, which argues that throughout modern U.S. history, up to and including the Joe Biden administration, it's the political left that has sabotaged American power. Senator says Biden's disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the failure to deter Russian aggression in Ukraine and to stand up effectively to a rising China are just the latest examples of progressives' failure to protect American security and interests. And he says this failure is not an unintended consequence, but a feature of the left's very conception of America itself and its role in the world. Tom Cotton has been a senator since 2015, before that served a term as a member in the House of Representatives. Before entering politics, of course, he served his country in a distinguished military career in Iraq and Afghanistan and was awarded the Bronze Star, the Combat Infantryman Badge and the Ranger Tab. And Tom Cotton joins me now. Senator Cotton, thanks very much for being here. Hey, Jerry. Thanks very much for having me on. So I want to get into the argument of your book about the left and how it has essentially sabotaged American political power over a very long period of time. And you also, I should say, do come up with proposals as to how to address that. But let's just start off, if we can, by looking at the state of the world at the moment. We've got these extraordinary global events going on, major land war going on in Europe between Russia and Ukraine. We've got China making very, very threatening noises about Taiwan. Just over a year ago, we saw the disastrous American withdrawal from Afghanistan. Around the world, people seem to be very, very unimpressed by American power. America seems to have lost the power to pursue its interests. How do you sum up where we are in the world and how we got here right now? Well, unfortunately, Jerry, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Friend and foe alike around the world are doubtful about America's resolve and American power. In fact, the Wall Street Journal has a column this week by your global affairs columnist, Walter Russell Mead, a great historian of American foreign policy and a friend and mentor of mine about the high cost of low defense spending. You saw it throughout the Obama era. Now you see it in what is, in effect, Obama's third term with Joe Biden, that we're hollowing out our military and wasting its time on social engineering. But you also see it in the foreign policy of Barack Obama and now Joe Biden as well, which has undermined American credibility, a key part of American deterrence, and in many cases sided with our adversaries like Iran over our longtime friends, nations like Israel and Saudi Arabia. And therefore, you see a, a growing tide of global disorder because America has not been strong and leading in the world the way we did, for instance, during Ronald Reagan's presidency, when we essentially eliminated our number one geopolitical competitor, the Soviet Union. Let's take Ukraine. I've talked to a lot of people in Europe. I know you do too. There seems to be, so far at least, a fairly high degree of unity around American leadership of NATO against Ukraine. The U.S. has been far and away the leading supplier of military equipment, training and other to Ukraine to help Ukraine in this astonishing fight, which so far as we can tell seems to be winning. How do you fault the Biden administration for its handling of Russia here? Well, if I could borrow from Winston Churchill, as I often do, and only the strong, he was asked what he would call World War II. And he said, very easy, the unnecessary war. 
Likewise, I would call Russia's war in Ukraine the unnecessary war. Whatever the administration is doing now, there's no question that Joe Biden's concessions towards Russia and his weakness in Afghanistan last year enticed or tempted Vladimir Putin to go for the jugular in Ukraine to accomplish what he's always wanted, which is reassembling the greater Russian empire. Furthermore, once the war seemed inevitable in December and January and February, President Biden kept projecting what we weren't going to do. He kept saying that we weren't going to provide this weapon or that weapon because he worried that it might be dangerously escalatory. These are not the ways to show resolve, not the ways to succeed in a contest of wills with an aggressive dictator like Vladimir Putin. What we should do is allow Ukraine to continue to show the bravery and skill it has shown on the battlefield by getting them the weapons that they need in a timely fashion so they can win their own war with the simple objective of getting Russian soldiers off of Ukrainian soil. I must ask you about President Trump in this context, though. And President Trump was no particular friend of Zelensky. In fact, famously got himself impeached, rightly or wrongly, over an attempt to kind of twist Zelensky's arm. President Trump was pretty friendly with Vladimir Putin, certainly didn't seem to be a kind of staunch defender of NATO against what Putin was trying to do. Do you not think that maybe what President Trump did maybe helped contribute to Vladimir Putin's sense of opportunity here? No, I don't, Jerry. And in fact, my Democratic friends in the Senate always hate it when I point out that Vladimir Putin seems to invade when Democrats are president, like Barack Obama and Joe Biden and not when a Republican like Donald Trump was president. And if you look at the fruits of Donald Trump's policies, which by and large were the correct policies towards Russia, you'll see why. So Barack Obama refused to provide Ukraine with any weapons, provided them with blankets and MREs, meals ready to eat famously. Under President Trump, we began to provide them with Javelin anti-tank missiles. President Trump refused to give Russia the no-strings-attached extension of our main nuclear arms control treaty, a badly one-sided treaty that favors Russia. Joe Biden did that in his earliest days in office. Again, a complete concession with no strings attached. President Trump stopped the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Again, Joe Biden reversed that decision, allowed the construction to proceed. On issue after issue in our bilateral relationship with Russia, Joe Biden projected weakness towards Vladimir Putin, whereas Donald Trump pursued policies that undermined Russia's interests. And that's true at home as well. Um, By unleashing American energy production for four years, we obviously undermined Russia and their economy by putting more American oil and gas on the international marketplace. The opposite has been happening under Joe Biden. So on almost every particular, we had the right, which is a tough policy towards Russia under President Trump. We've had a weaker policy under Joe Biden. As you know, there seem to be a significant number of people in your party, a minority perhaps still, but maybe a growing number of people in your party who are a little skeptical of the idea that the US should be standing up to Russia, especially in the particular context of the Ukraine war. You see Congressman Kevin McCarthy, who in a few weeks' time may be the Speaker of the House, say to raise question marks about whether or not the US, how much more uh, military assistance the United States should be supplying to Ukraine. You see people like J.D. Vance, who may be sitting with you in the Senate in a few months' time from Ohio, saying recently he doesn't care about Ukraine very much. There does seem to be a growing voice in the Republican Party that is skeptical about the U.S. fighting, even helping other countries fight these wars a long way away from home when there are big pressing issues to deal with at home. What do you say to those Republicans in your own party who seem to be opposing the strategic approach that you favor? One thing I would say is that what most Americans recognize is that a war of aggression across international borders like 
Vladimir Putin launched against Ukraine earlier this year, or say Saddam Hussein launched against Kuwait in 1990, is inherently more dangerous to America's interests and undermines our interest around the world than a civil war does, which is where we're often called upon to intervene. Nor do I say that we should intervene in Ukraine. I have never advocated for American troops being in Ukraine. Now, I wouldn't have announced that in advance the way Joe Biden did, because I don't want to simplify Vladimir Putin's war planning. But what I think we should do is support the Ukrainian people in fighting their own war. And this is the exact kind of policy that Ronald Reagan pursued in so many places, standing with the forces of freedom against Soviet aggression, whether it was standing up for nation states that were resisting Soviet encroachment or supporting freedom movements around the world trying to resist Soviet encroachment. He didn't advocate for, say, putting American troops into Afghanistan in the 1980s, but he certainly supported the Afghan people in trying to beat back a Soviet invasion. And that's a similar policy of what we're doing in Ukraine. One thing I do hear is complaints that Joe Biden seems to care more about Ukraine's border than he does about, say, America's borders. I understand that. And we should do a lot more to secure our border so we don't have 5 million illegal aliens crossing the country. But I don't think we should exacerbate one Biden mistake by making another mistake. One fear that, again, many people in your party and indeed elsewhere more widely have is the fear of escalation here in Ukraine. With Vladimir Putin struggling, as he clearly is, he's making all kinds of saber rattling noises, you know, risks and there's people fear that he may escalate all the way up to the use of a tactical nuclear weapon and that we could, through our support of Ukraine, a country, since we're sort of quoting famous historical figures, a far off country of which most Americans and indeed most people around the world know little, we could be headed down the path towards nuclear confrontation over this territorial struggle in Eastern Europe. How great is that risk? Again, what do you say to those critics who say, why are we doing this? Why are we taking these steps that could lead us to a nuclear exchange? Well, in the nuclear age, going back to the 1940s, obviously we need to be mindful of nuclear threats to America. But at the same time, we can't be paralyzed by them as we weren't paralyzed in the Reagan presidency with Soviet Russia's nuclear forces. So far, there's no evidence to suggest that Vladimir Putin has taken actions to back up his nuclear saber-rattling words. It's always important in foreign policy to judge actions as much as words because no nation undertakes any effort without a major commitment of resources, and that would include their nuclear forces. So far, we haven't seen that. Furthermore, I would suggest that Vladimir Putin went into this war thinking he might have the second strongest military in the world. After eight months, I think he's fighting very hard just to prove he has the second best military in Ukraine. And having struggled so badly in Ukraine for the last eight months, I doubt that he wants to escalate and try to take on NATO or the United States itself. Our broader interest here are to ensure that aggressive dictators like Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping in China don't believe that they can remake the global order and the world map by launching wars of aggression. And if Vladimir Putin sees the United States or Europe back down and falter and start hesitating after just a few months of conflict in Ukraine, then imagine what kind of lesson someone like Xi Jinping will take from that on his desire to go for the jugular in Taiwan. I want to move on to China very briefly, but just final question on Ukraine. From America's perspective, what's the best outcome to this conflict that's going on in Ukraine? Well, obviously, the Ukrainian people through their government will have a major say in that, and in battlefield events will dictate what direction the end takes. But ultimately, the way to have a favorable outcome in Ukraine 
is not to cede more ground to Russia or to get caught on the back foot. It's to make sure that the Ukrainian army has the weapons that it needs to stay on the front foot and have leverage going into any kind of negotiated peace settlements if that's the way the war ends. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Senator Tom Cotton on his new book on how the left has undermined American power. We'll also talk about how domestic politics play into the way in which America can project its own role in the world. Stay with us. Join the Wall Street Journal in New York City on June 6, 2024, for the inaugural Tech Live Cybersecurity to network and hear from leading cybersecurity experts across a variety of sectors on how to combat cybersecurity threats, mitigate crippling attacks, and safeguard privacy on the individual and organizational level. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. I'm back with Senator Tom Cotton talking about his new book, Only the Strong. Moving on to China then, we've heard again in the last few weeks Xi Jinping making kind of threatening noises about Taiwan at the recent National People's Congress where he was reappointed to an unprecedented third term as China's leader. He has been making these noises. To what extent does the war in Ukraine either encourage or discourage him from taking hostile action, whether it be all-out military action or some kind of an embargo designed to essentially to capture Taiwan? Well, as I explained in Only the Strong, pretty much all roads are leading to this confrontation between the United States and China. And that's really the choice we face, whether we want to continue to live in a free, safe, prosperous nation with the mantle of leadership of the world, or whether we want to live in a Chinese-dictated techno-dystopia. It may not be the case that China controls America directly and you know prevents us from worshiping God and having free elections, although that's always possible. It may just be that they become so powerful and have such a position of strategic advantage that they are able to call the shots, you know, in international relations, you run the show or the show runs you. And I don't think many Americans want the show to be run by Chinese communists. I think Xi Jinping has established himself as the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao Zedong, uh, after having secured his unprecedented third five-year term. I also suspect he views China's window to strike at Taiwan as closing, much as Vladimir Putin viewed his window to seize Ukraine as closing as well. China has an aging population. Its economic growth is slowing down. Xi Jinping has taken Joe Biden's measure, and I don't think he thinks very much of our president. So I think we're at a very dangerous period in our time. That's one reason why it's so important to be completely clear that we will not tolerate the forcible seizure of Taiwan by the Chinese communists. Unfortunately, that's the opposite of what Joe Biden has done. As I point out, not only the strong, he has said four times in a mere 13 months that we would come militarily to Taiwan's aid, only to have anonymous White House aides reverse it within a matter of hours. That's the opposite of the kind of strategic and moral clarity necessary to prevent wars from happening. Well, that's interesting because, against that strategic ambiguity has been a kind of feature of American policy towards China and Taiwan now for a very long time. Ambiguity about the status of Taiwan to some extent, publicly committing to the one China policy, suggesting that Taiwan is ultimately part of China, but strongly opposing and warning China against retaking Taiwan by force, but always leaving ambiguous whether or not the U.S. would actually move militarily to support and defend Taiwan if it were attacked by China. You're saying the U.S. should basically just, I mean, and again, as you say, in the last 
year and a half, Joe Biden seems to have unilaterally ended the strategic ambiguity, only to have it reined back in again by his staff. You're saying you think the US should just end that strategic ambiguity and say with complete clarity to China, if you attack Taiwan, it's war with the United States. I do think that we should say to China now, if you attack Taiwan, we will come to Taiwan's aid militarily. One simple way to make that clear is to accelerate our weapon sales to Taiwan. So like Ukraine, Taiwan is able to defend its own territory and its own sovereignty and freedom in the early days of a potential war with the Chinese communists. As you say, our relationship with Taiwan has been fraught with nuance and subtlety going back to 1979 when we switched diplomatic relations from Taiwan to the Chinese communists on the mainland. In a historic irony that I point out in Only the Strong, George Bush in early 2001, in his first days in office, announced that he would come to Taiwan's aid militarily. And he quickly walked it back. But a seasoned senator said the damage was done. You can't unring the bell. You can't take those words back. It was a foolish mistake. And that now we seem to have a policy of ambiguous strategic ambiguity. Of course, that senator was Joe Biden. Joe Biden, though, has done it now four times in 13 months, as I said. And again, that's the worst of all possible worlds because you get provocation without deterrence. But if we want to help maintain the peace in the Western Pacific, the simplest way to do that is to arm Taiwan and to make it clear that the United States will not stand idly by if Xi Jinping tries to go for the jugular there. Let's talk about the book. It's a fascinating book. And as you say, a large part of the book is a kind of a historical account over the last hundred years or so of how radical left Democrats have essentially weakened American power, going back to the progressives in the early 20th century, right up to Barack Obama and Joe Biden in the last decade. I'm interested in it because, again, your argument, and I think summing up, I've got a quote from you, you say that throughout this period, the radical left plots to sabotage American power. And I'm wondering a little bit how you define it. You could also look at the last hundred years and you can certainly look at the Woodrow Wilsons and the Jimmy Carters and the Barack Obamas and the Joe Bidens, who maybe who clearly have not been successful foreign policy presidents. But you could also look at FDR, who after all, you know, led the United States uh, to victory in the Second World War. You could look at John F. Kennedy, who robustly stood up to the Soviets in the Cuban Missile Crisis, the point of maximum danger, perhaps in the entire Cold War. He was a Democrat. And you have Lyndon Johnson, who, if anything, probably failed as the president because he was too keen, too eager to assert military power in Vietnam. I'm just wondering, explain, if you will, the thesis of the book, why you think it is the left that sort of somehow continuously fails American power? Well, it all starts with the progressives and especially Woodrow Wilson, the kind of patron saint of the progressive movement, the first American president to openly repudiate the American founding, our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, this belief that somehow we're moving towards a utopia, heaven on earth, mankind and our perfectible nature didn't need such outmoded things as checks and balances and the separation of powers and federalism. We could have this vast administrative state of supposed unelected, neutral scientific experts setting the course for our nation. In foreign policy, you see it as an unwillingness to use power for America's interests. And uh, with, even with Woodrow Wilson, who took us into World War I in 1917, look at his war message to Congress. It didn't speak at all about America's interests. Now, we had plenty of vital interests at stake. Germany had restarted unrestricted submarine warfare. Shortages were already happening in our economy. Germany had conspired with the Mexican government to seize territory in our Southwest. Two years earlier, Germany had killed over 100 Americans in the sinking of the Lusitania. But he didn't talk about any of those things. He talked about abstractions and ideals. Now, it is the case that presidents like, say, FDR, Harry Truman are better than 
Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Joe Biden. But their record is somewhat mixed as well. You know, FDR refused to build up our military in the 1930s. Even as war clouds were gathering, our military was smaller than Portugal's when the war started. Once the war started, he always seemed, in part because he was surrounded by some communist influences, to take actions that were favoring Stalin as the Soviet Union, not Great Britain and France and our own interests. But I want to, in particular, point out that JFK and LBJ were complete disasters on foreign policy. I know there's a hagiography about JFK, how he was this staunch Cold War Democrat. That is simply not the case. You know, you look at his famous inaugural address. He didn't just say that we would bear any burden and pay any price. He also specifically singled out standing for freedom in Latin America. Yet within just months of taking office, he led us into the Bay of Pigs, which was a complete fiasco, which helped cement Castro in power and diminish American power. Just a few months after that, you had the notorious Vienna summit where Khrushchev browbeat Kennedy by his own admission. The Berlin Wall went up. Kennedy stood idly by. Laotian and Vietnamese communists seized critical territory in Laos that allowed them to build the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And then Kennedy said that we're going to have to make our stand in Vietnam. And you even mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I think is very well taken as a point of comparison today because we hear it in the news a lot about Ukraine. The Cuban Missile Crisis was a strategic defeat of the first order. Khrushchev and the Soviets put missiles in Cuba. They had not had missiles there before. The upshot of those days in October of 1962 is that Soviet Russia and Cuba just went back to the status quo ante. No Russian nuclear missiles in Cuba. But what happened to America? We agreed that they could put any kind of weapon into Cuba they wanted to, as long as it wasn't nuclear. We agreed that we would no longer try to undermine the Castro regime, and we removed our missiles from Turkey. So the Cuban Missile Crisis was a strategic defeat of the First Order, not some kind of grand victory for JFK and Camelot in the United States. Although, and I don't want to get too much into the historical weeds, it didn't come about because JFK or, or any of his advisors sort of somehow wanted to undermine America, did it? I mean, they actually, in fact, they came to the point, uh, whatever you say about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I agree with you about the consequences of it, that was an example of an American president being willing to make the literally the ultimate decision to defend American interests in order to face down what was perceived to be a serious Soviet threat. So again, we can absolutely argue about the strategic implications of it, but in terms of what it says about a democratic president being willing to stand up and defend American interests, it doesn't suggest he wasn't willing to do that, does he? So once he was backed in the corner, as those missiles were discovered in Cuba, you can say that he did the absolute minimum you would expect. My main point, I outline it on the strong, is that we should have never gotten to that point, just like we should have never gotten to war in Ukraine. And one common theme you see with Democrats is that although they are almost genetically weak, they, they grant concessions, they appease our adversaries, they recognize that that is electorally dangerous as well. So there's a syndrome when Democrats act tough, yet their heart's not really in it, that they use big words in the campaign like JFK did about Cuba or Barack Obama did about Afghanistan. But when they get in office, they're not willing to follow through on those commitments or they get us into wars and they're unwilling to allow our military to fight and win those wars in the ways that are necessary. You mentioned LBJ. LBJ did escalate a lot in Vietnam, but he still kept at least one hand tied behind the military's back. It was only when Nixon came into office that we started bombing the hell out of Hanoi and mining the Haiphong Harbor and essentially beat the North Vietnamese back. So you do see the syndrome where Democrats know that it's electorally dangerous to be weak. As Bill Clinton used to say, the American people would rather have strong and wrong than weak and right. It just goes to show their mindset, though, that they think that strong and wrong is the only choice. You can't be strong and right. 
you're obviously very critical, rightly, of recent Democratic presidents, Clinton, Obama, current President Biden, for everything you describe. I think a lot of people would agree with you in terms of their failure to really defend American interests and values. But as you look at the history of the last 20 years, and you do address this a little bit in your book, not in great detail, but look at the history of the last 20 years, and you could, you could argue that what happened to the United States in Iraq between 2003, particularly in 2006, and maybe all the way to 2003 to 2011, was, was an absolutely disastrous episode for the United States, that it was a series of miscalculations led the United States into what was actually, many people I think would agree, a calamitous series of events, the failures of which continue to reverberate and continue to weaken American power around the world. But again, looking at the role that the parties play, that was obviously a Republican president strongly projecting American power in a way that frankly didn't end up very well, did it? Well, there's no question, Jerry, that Republicans make mistakes. I mean, everyone's human. But more to the point, as I say in the book, those are mistakes. They are missteps that can be reversed with better choices. So I saw firsthand when I was a platoon leader in Baghdad, the consequences of George Bush's mistake not to have enough troops in Iraq from the very beginning. But he reversed that with the surge. Just like Donald Trump, I think, made a mistake by not withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal on day one. He reversed that about a year and a half later. Wasn't the initial mistake, though, actually, you know, and again, it was a bipartisan mistake, but Bush was president at the time, the fundamental mistake of intelligence to believe that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and was a threatening to use those weapons, when as we found out he didn't. That was a pretty serious mistake by a Republican administration, wasn't it? So it was a mistake by our intelligence agencies, but not only our intelligence agencies, by every Western intelligence agency, which all believe that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And you can't live life in reverse. I mean, if you want to argue that, you can also argue that we should have had our Pacific fleet move down to Pearl Harbor on December 6th, and it was a grave mistake that FDR didn't do that. When you're fighting a war, though, you can only take the conditions you have and have going forward. And that's why I say it was George Bush's finest hour when he refused to cut and run in Iraq and ordered the surge. And by the end, when he turned over reigns to Barack Obama in 2009, Iraq was basically stabilized, as was much of the Middle East. Iran was on the back foot. This is a common theme, as I write, not only the strong in transitions. Democrats hand over a world that's full of disorder. Republicans hand back a world that has become stabilized. You saw it with Eisenhower and Korea. You saw it with Nixon and Vietnam. You saw it with George Bush and the Middle East in 2008. By the end of that campaign, foreign policy and specifically the Iraq war was really not even a matter of controversy or dispute on the campaign because we'd had so much success with the surge. Again, you saw it when Barack Obama left office, the world, especially the Middle East, was going up in smoke. Donald Trump was able to restore America's credibility and power and bring a measure of stability. Finally, Senator, you talk a lot of the book, and I want you to talk, if you will, a little bit about this, about solutions here and about the way forward, how to restore American power and to re-emphasize and to restate American strategic objectives and to achieve them. Can I ask you, just before you answer that larger question, how do you deal with the fact that something that is, I think, is a profound problem for the United States right now is the country is so divided. You have an incredibly highly partisan country for split almost 50-50 election after election, and not just numerically divided, but the passion and, frankly, the resentment and the enmity that it seems to exist on both sides. We have these polls that show on both sides, people think if the other side gets into power, it's the end of America. I mean, it's literally that strong now, the partisan sentiment. As you look at how America does repair a lot of the strategic damage that's been done, how do you overcome that problem that you have a country that is so domestically divided? You know, Abraham Lincoln famously put it, quoting the Bible, said, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
How do you overcome that problem in the current political environment in a way that helps the United States once again assert and achieve its strategic objectives? Well, Jerry, first off, drawing from history as I try to so often and only the strong, you realize this is not the first time we've had deep divisions in our country. Obviously, you cited one leading to the Civil War. We had deep divisions in the late 18th and early 19th century when the two-party system between Jefferson and Madison on the one hand and Adams and Hamilton on the other hand was coming into being. Likewise, in the 60s and 70s, with the rise of the Blame America First Democrats, who rejected not just American power, but our country itself. In the end, I think most Americans are not ideological. They don't hate America. They don't think American power is a source for ill in the world, but rather a source of strength here and abroad. It only took a political leader like Ronald Reagan to help reverse those trends. Now, more broadly, I would say that one reason why we have a federal system is not only to provide one of those checks and balances on the people who govern our nation and govern our states, because our founding fathers, as I write, and only the strong, understand that you cannot provide power to the people who wield it without those checks, that man is a fallen creature and that it needs those controls, unlike the progressives who think we can achieve some kind of utopia on earth. But it was also the only way to effectively govern a large continental nation. Of course, our nation has only gotten larger now. People of California choose a very different style of government than I would choose and most Arkansans would choose. That's their prerogative. But what they don't have is the right to impose those choices on other states, try to dictate choices for people in Arkansas or in Maine or in Minnesota or so forth. So federalism is not just a way to control power. It's also a way to account for those divisions, different circumstances and viewpoints about economics and culture and social policies. And I think we'd do much better off if we tried to settle fewer of these questions for the nation as a whole in Washington and settle them for ourselves and our states and our communities. Republicans and Republican states, by and large, are willing to do that. Too many states like California are trying to do it for the entire nation by imposing policies on them or enacting travel bans for their officials or what have you. So I'd recommend that everyone get back to federalism, not just as a check and balance on power, but as a way to maintain social harmony in a large, diverse continental nation. But you do have the reality of the fact that, as we've seen in the last couple of years, the progressive left, which seems to have a lot of support for this view in a lot of the institutions of America, sort of fundamentally believes America, you make the point in your book, is a terrible country. It has been a terrible country from its foundation. We have the whole 1619 project saying that America was really founded in 1619 when the arrival of the first slaves here and not in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, that you have this large body of opinion here that seems to actually think that America needs to retreat and atone and make reparations for everything it's done in the world and not stand up. Isn't that a problem for a country that many of us believe is you know, the last best hope on earth? Isn't that a problem, though, for those of you like us, you know, who want to reassert American power and American supremacy in the world? When you have so many people here, it seems who literally think America is the worst country in the history of the world. Jerry, borrowing from Jean Kirkpatrick, Ronald Reagan's great United Nations ambassador, herself a fellow Democrat, first coined the term the blame America first Democrats, I'd say, and only the strong, you have their children and grandchildren today on things like the 1619 Project or Barack Obama projecting that view and trying to atone for our supposed sins with Iran and with Cuba. Joe Biden kind of being his understudy, but being staffed and oftentimes directed by Obama's very ideological aides. But it's not a large element of our society. It is a powerful and influential element in our society. You see it in the administrative state in Washington and Wall Street and big tech and Hollywood on university campuses. Really, the one source of power that kind of normal, traditional American patriots have 
are in the elected parts of our government, which is to say among our people. And I think you're going to see in the election next week a very strong repudiation of these blame America first Democrats. Whatever their views on this or that policy, they believe that America is a great and a good country and that we should be strong and assertive at home and abroad in protecting our interest and defending our way of life. Tom Cotton, Senator from Arkansas. The new book is Only the Strong, Reversing the Left's Plot to Sabotage American Power. Senator Cotton, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks very much for listening. Please join us again next week when, straight after the midterm elections, we'll have a deep dive into what the results are, what they mean, and where America goes next. Join us next week. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>